This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Master. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So, in its first major product event of the year, Apple, Apple returning to its roots in the educational market. The event hold, uh, held today excuse me, at Lane Technical College Prep High School in Chicago. Our Mark Gurman, I need to go back to school to learn how to speak. He's our Bloomberg News technology reporter. He is there and checking out this scene. Mark, good to have you here. First of all, set the scene for us. What have you seen? What's going on? So I'm at school right now, so it's kind of hard to talk, but I'll, I'll give you a few minutes. Okay. Um, so they announced a new iPad today. It's a new version of the $299 for students, $329 for everyone else model. Faster processor, it's the chip, the A10 chip from the iPhone 7 announced in 2016. Same screen, basically, as the iPad has had, same size, shape, and everything like that. The real new headline feature is support for the Apple Pencil, so this is the first time they're releasing an iPad with Apple Pencil support. That's not a pro model, which means it's about $250, $300 cheaper to get an iPad that can use the stylus. That's really the big news there. Lots of software as well. What's going on here? Is this about product, product announcement, or is this about hopefully another revenue stream that Apple's trying to juice here a little bit? Yeah, there's a few things at hand. So despite what others might tell you, Apple has sort of let its lead in education languish. They were talking about on stage how they've been doing education for 40 years, and that's true. Education was really a big part of the Apple story when Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak you know, co-founded the company 40 years ago. But over the last few years or so, Google Chromebooks and Microsoft with its classroom software and uh, lower-end laptops have sort of really taken a stronghold on the market. Chrome OS, which runs on the Google laptop, has 59% of the market for shift to devices K through 12, according to data from Q3 of 2017, with Apple only having 17%, and that combines iPhones, iPads, and Macs. So clearly there's work to do, and they're saying, hey, look, let's go to this really cool school in Chicago, right in the center of the country, and let's show off this new iPad, spin it around education, come in with all this education software and say, hey, we're here too, we're still here, and we have something really cool for people who want to use Apple products. And we're at a price point that's close to a Chromebook. And I feel like that's key. You know, it's it's interesting when you were talking, I was thinking about the different schools that my daughter's been at. And I'm always like, I feel like Apple doesn't have a very strong presence. And I was kind of surprised you saw kind of Google everywhere. Um, that price point, though, that you just mentioned, that's going to be important, correct, in terms of getting schools to maybe sign on? For bulk purchases. And remember, yeah. this, isn't not, this is not a new price point. This is something they first tried starting last year. This is really a marketing event. This is saying, hey, we're here too. This is not really giving anything new to the marketplace. It's, it's alerting people of their, of their push in education more than anything. Talk about the apps and how important that is, that in terms of the applications that students, teachers will have access to, how important is that in making sure that yeah. this is kind of a successful uh, move by Apple? Yeah, so Google Classroom is a highly successful platform that runs on the Google devices, the Chrome OS devices. Apple announced a new service called Schoolwork today. It's an iCloud 
you know, powered service that allows teachers to assign classwork, allows students to submit their classwork. It's a more integrated and comprehensive solution that Apple has had before, and this is going right up against uh, the classwork app from Google. Um, I'm just thinking as investors who are watching, is there anything that they need to kind of take away from this news from Apple? I don't know, Mark, is there something, you know, more significant, more longer term here that's going on that's that's worthy of noting and pointing out for investors here? So I'm just taking a look at, let me just yeah. see what the stock's doing. I mean, it's down a little bit today. It's been bouncing around like the rest of the market. Right. I mean, I guess the most important thing here is that Apple realizes that People will buy what they're used to, right? When kids graduate, they want them buying the iPad Pro, more expensive devices, the iPhone, the Mac. So they want them to get hooked on Apple early. There's this whole service about creating an Apple ID for students now, giving them lots of free storage, really enticing them to enter the Apple ecosystem, which will spur further service to sales and hardware sales down the road. They're playing the long-term game here. And, you know, at the same time, I really believe they care about education. Yeah. Uh, aside, aside from, you know, all their marketing and, and all that. So I think this is a, a real important issue for them. So it's good to see them back in the fold uh, does, in the education market. Does this say anything about what we might hear from the company? Are we expecting uh, later this year any kind of new product announcements that might be interesting? Yeah. So I always love your enthusiasm. <laughs> uh, it really sets the stage for a, a much bigger iPad update coming uh, in the second half of the year, an iPad Pro revamp with uh, better support for the Apple Pencil as well, Face ID like on the iPhone 10, faster processor, all sorts of new custom hardware, and a redesign of it slimmer on the edges and such. And we, we reported last year that that's coming this year. And now for sure we know it's coming this year because they won't be able to get away with such a small tablet update with just the iPad they released today. So you can see they're doing like two increments of, of iPad updates this year. And when is that expected? Is it the fall typically or what? Second half of the year. Second half of the year, so we'll see something. Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, any other things in terms of uh, what they're working in some of the other markets, the home market or anything other beyond that? <clears throat> so we'll see a cheaper version of the MacBook to replace the MacBook Air, which also is an aging product that, believe it or not, it was last revamped in 2010, so eight years ago. And to really date this, Steve Jobs is the one who unveiled this machine in October of 2010. So they're going to have a, a solution there cheaper also perhaps geared towards students and mass consumers to go after the Chromebook. There's also going to be, obviously, three new iPhones in the fall. Great. A giant model with a six-and-a-half-inch screen. So it'll be a jam-packed year, as always. That's what I'm waiting for, because I'm ready to upgrade. I'm just waiting for that giant screen. All right, Mark Gurman, thank you so much. Mark Gurman is our Bloomberg News technology reporter. Really appreciate He is at uh, Lane Technical College Prep High School in Chicago. Uh, a product event for Apple and really returning to its roots of the educational market. He's telling, he's telling me, he's, I, I'm like, I got to do my radio show. <laughs> I'm here with the CEO of SoundCloud, Kerry Trainer. Uh, we're having a great conversation off air, but we want to bring it on air for everybody. He's in our Bloomberg 1130 studio, as he reminded me, based in Berlin, but he also, they've got uh, offices here in New York, so he's kind of back and forth. Um, 
I got to ask you about making money in the world of streaming. It's already hit several sour notes. You took over last summer and you came in with, bang, a different strategy. Just remind our listeners what it's all about. Sure. Well, SoundCloud has really always come at the space from a very different perspective, which is so SoundCloud is an open audio platform, which means that any creator can upload their work and share it directly with the world through the platform. So we focus on the creators first. Right. Um, because of the creators and, and the tools that we give them, we, we attract a very unique unique catalog of content, which in turn brings lots of listeners, which also creates a great streaming experience, but it's built a very different way. It's built from the creators out. You call it the DIY creator market, don't you? Or I saw it somewhere in an article. Yeah, it is expressed that way. We don't don't often call it that way. Um, We don't often speak of it that way, but but it's it's a fine uh, analogy in that um, look, the the world of the web and, and all digital products is is it's more empowering than ever before for any creator because you can put your work into the world and reach an audience directly. And, right. and that is what SoundCloud is for audio. Um, so we want to be that first place that creators come to upload their work, share it, start to build an audience, start to earn some revenue from it. Um, and there's so, a novel idea. Yeah, there, there is a novel idea. <laughs> so it's not about negotiating with the record companies and the artists, the established artists out there, about getting music on your service. Well, we do also carry the music from the major labels and publishers, right? But for on SoundCloud, all of this comes together uh, in a very unique catalog, right? So we have over 175 million tracks on our platform. Pretty amazing. Right? The typical major label and major publisher catalog is about 35 or 40 million, right? So about a, almost 150 million of those tracks are de facto exclusive to SoundCloud because they're coming directly from creators. So for us, it's a blend. And so that true two-sided ecosystem also allows us to build a business in a different way, which is we build the business, as I said, just with the product, from creators first. So we have free services for creators, but we also have two subscription services that creators pay us for. And unlike, What do they get when they, so what they up it a tier? Yeah, so two. what they get is they get more storage, um, and then they also get additional features. Um, so like on our pro on our pro tier, they get six hours of storage versus three on a free, and then on our pro unlimited, they get unlimited storage. And for us, this is really important because Unlike the listener business, which we can talk about in a moment, the creator business has very high margins, very long subscriber lifespans, right? So this is a very attractive cash flow positive business. It is cash flow positive yes, already. Sets SoundCloud apart from all of our competitors, right? So when we talk about SoundCloud, and we should absolutely talk about the incredible content experience we deliver, it's yeah. important to remember that the core of the platform is a subscription software business for creators. You said better margins on yes. the creator business care to share? No, I can't share what the margins actually are, but I can I can share that they are uh, multiple times better than than what's achievable on the listener side. Um, and, and just because it's it's just a very different type of product. Right. right? And, and Do you see most of your business carry eventually being more on the creator business side? Well, the way we think about the balance between our businesses, so so as I said, we always start with the creator first. It's, right. it's what distinguishes our platform, our product, our brand. Frankly, it is our mission to empower creators. Um, and so the the way we think about this, we always want to maximize that business. We always want to make the most of it that we possibly can. Today, we have hundreds of thousands of paying creators. We do think there are millions of these creators who are willing to pay. We currently have about 10 million creators who are heard on the platform every single month. Over 25 million creators have used SoundCloud in its history. That's a lot right? of users. So it's one of the exciting things about creator businesses. Um, they often hide in plain sight. Yeah. 
So think about a product like an Adobe for, 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 for visual designers. That's a way to think about the potential size of the creator side of SoundCloud. I kicked it off saying that this you know, st- world of streaming music, though, has already hit you know, several sour notes, and I don't need to talk to you about you know, Spotify is still not profitable. And I understand it's not apples to apples in terms mm-hmm. of your model. Um, and, but I'm just curious. You've got the big players out there, whether it's Apple and some others, and they seem, you know, all they want to do is, for the most part, is just getting people to use their apps and stuff. But do you get nervous about some of these big players that are out there? Uh, because you're, I hear your excitement. Yeah. It sounds like things are going good. Yeah. What is it, though, that kind of freaks you out a little bit? Um, well, look, I... I'm not very freaked out about the uh, creator side of our business and that and you've heard it like that that's a very unique place where we very clearly lead um, and when I but think somebody it, could come in and out right of course look you always have to be vigilant and you have to take your competitors seriously and we absolutely do and the companies that we're competing against but more on the listener side are very talented companies yeah but let me also just just say on the listener side 30 seconds um, which is look we're in a mode where there is a new model for revenue now. There's a new model for listeners. Hundreds of millions of people will subscribe to music. Yes, we all need to figure out how everybody can play in that value chain, but I'm confident that will get worked out. And either way, um, that we have that strong creator business at the core will always set us apart. So when will you be profitable? Um, well, that's not something that we're going to disclose anytime soon, but I can say um, you know, we've been managed to achieve a few months of cash flow positivity and we think that's a step in the right direction and you're never upbeat about this change in the model that it makes sense yeah. that it will lead you to productivity yeah look I, I was I was extremely excited to join the company seven months ago because it's truly a one-of-a-kind platform right and I'm very excited about our path forward well fun to have you coming keep us up to date as Absolutely things will. move along Kerry trainer he's chief executive officer of SoundCloud as I mentioned based in Berlin based in New York in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this Tuesday So, Amazon's Jeff Bezos, J.P. Morgan Chase's Jamie Dimon, and Warren Buffett surprised many earlier this year by saying they are looking to work together to fix healthcare, starting with their own companies. Amazon's foray into healthcare, in particular, has put many traditional healthcare players on edge. Jim Rogers is here with us. He's chair of business development at the Mayo Clinic, excuse me, based in, of course, uh, Rochester, Minnesota, but in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Nice to have you here. I find the healthcare space fascinating because I feel like it's one of the last venues that needs to be updated. When you look at it, what do you think are the biggest priorities right now? Uh, that's a great question, Carol. I think at the end of the day, you're absolutely right. I think the, the recipe for disruption is there. You've seen all the interest around something like the Amazon, uh, J.P. Morgan, Berkshire Hathaway announcement, and you see a lot going on in technology. The kind of the areas... We're focusing in, in particular, regenerative medicine. There's a lot of therapies coming online that are dramatically changing the landscape. Individualized medicine, how do we treat you differently than maybe how you would treat me? Mm-hmm. And then separately, how you deal with all the data. The data inputs, there's a blessing and a curse there. There's so much more data I can get on you. Right. And yet, as a physician or a clinician or a nurse, how do I get to what's relevant? Yeah, no, I think that's really kind of interesting. I also wonder, too, when you have... In any industry, you have such a um, infrastructure that's been in place, and the healthcare uh, world has had a, a, a fixed infrastructure for a long time. It's hard to change that. How do you do it? And I think about some of the new therapies that are are, are going to impact some major players that are out there. I think you're absolutely right, and it, it, to me, that's what's interesting about business development, Mail Clinic. We're looking three to four years ahead. What that's, do you do? Like, what are you doing on yeah, a regular basis? So 
what I do on a regular basis is we are looking at the ideas that are coming out of Mayo Clinic, but we're also looking at the ideas that are outside of Mayo Clinic. We don't have all the answers. Right. What we're trying to find is what where's medicine going? Where do we think at the end of the day what's going to be relevant for patients? What is it that we can do to help Mayo or help the healthcare industry get there? So if it takes a license, we'll do that. If it takes a startup, we'll do that. If it takes a venture investing, we'll do that. All the way up through to joint ventures, mm -hmm. whatever it takes to get the right vehicle in place. We know we can't do it ourselves. We know we have to effectively work with industry. It's why you think that we should all get used to unlikely partnerships that I think you believe will spark some kind of healthcare revolution. So when you heard about the partnership between Bezos, Diamond, and Buffett, what did you think initially? I thought, great. Uh, you know, Have they reached out to you guys? Uh, you know, I think everyone's talking in this industry. Is that so, a yes or no? Wait a minute. Kind of uh, <laughs> a little I think every, Everyone talks to everybody. <laughs> and I think at the end of the day, what I like about it is, you know, if you look at retail as an example, we still all know Amazon's making its money on what cloud storage, right? Right. But if you look at what it did to the retail industry, it turned it on its head. And it's very good with transparency. It understands how to drive uh, pricing and transparency, and that's needed in the healthcare industry. Is that a big part of the problem right now, the whole pricing mechanisms that are out there? And there's, I feel like there's so many different people getting a piece of it. Yeah, I think it, that's certainly part of it. I, I think there are, there are a lot of players involved. It's not a purpose-built system. It's a system that kind of built up. It's very fragmented. And again, that to me is the perfect recipe for, for disruption. When you add in you know, artificial intelligence and all the things that are occurring on the technology side, and then you add in younger patients who I think want to take more control of their health care and are not willing to uh, accept what's currently occurring, I think disruption is going to be happening at a faster and faster pace. But So go back to Bezos, Buffett, and Diamond. Yeah. Like, What do you think about it? I, I think it's great. I think they're going to start with uh, their patients. Their, I'm sorry, their employees, right. uh, potential patients. I think if they're, they're they're probably going to be focused on more population health kind of approaches. How do I make the employees more healthy? How do I keep them out of the healthcare system? Uh, keep how do them I well. Keep like, them I, well. I feel like that's something yeah. we just we're getting better, but not great. No, I think that, that's right. We're, we're getting better, but we're not great about it. And at some level, it's not necessarily the healthcare system's obligation to do that. Yeah. At some level, it's going to be people like the folks you mentioned, that, that kind of consortium. But employers want to do it, right? It reduces that's exactly their, their right. costs. Yes, they're in, absolutely incented to reduce their costs and make sure that their employees are as healthy as possible. Um, what about kind of embracing um, alternative medicine? Mm-hmm. Do you see that taking off more than we've seen in the past? You know, I think it's possible. I think the way we would look at it is we would want fact-based. So we'd want data-driven, but it, there's no reason why solutions can't come out of out of that realm. There's absolutely no reason. There's so many things. I know I'm peppering you with so many mm -hmm. things, but I think also about robotics, right? Mm -hmm. we, we don't go by a day when we're taking a look at algorithms and you know, automation increasingly going into places that we never thought would happen, and we're seeing it. What, what's the role in medicine? We already have machines and things that, do a lot of, that can do a lot of things and do do a lot of things, but how much further does it go? Oh, I think it can go a lot further. I think when we look at artificial intelligence, we look at it as augmented intelligence, meaning that how do we Kind make, of augmented reality kind of a thing? Well, or, or what? more to say, how do we make the, the care provider, whoever the care provider may be, how do we make her much more effective at what she does? So it's giving her the information that she needs that's relevant at that point in time. 
That's absolutely critical. On the robotic side, I think you're going to see robotic surgeries that are remote, that are going to happen. You know, if you look at the rural healthcare uh, situation right now, you have less and less doctors, right. less and less physicians, less and less surgeons. There's no reason less why. Less and less facilities. Less and less facilities. There's no reason why you couldn't have remote uh, surgeries. When is that going to happen? Sooner rather than later. I think that's part of what we're trying to explore from a business development standpoint is go out there, try these opportunities. It's a really challenging thing to do when you're a large organization. Every organization struggles with that, right? right. Very challenging thing to do. There's the infrastructure, there's the culture. Exactly <laughs> right. You're exactly right. It's the infrastructure, it's the culture. And yet the leadership, has, uh, has they understand. They understand that we need to look at what's coming and that might mean something different. We're talking with Jim Rogers, Chair of Business Development at the Mayo Clinic. I I've always been kind of blown away, though, by the inability to kind of have all the data in one central system. And I understand the privacy concerns, but I have to be honest with you, I'm getting to a point where I don't want to fill out another form. I just filled it out for you last month. You know, why isn't it in the system? Why isn't it when I go to a doctor and there's my comprehensive history? Because I think that will ultimately lead also to better care. I, well, I think you're absolutely right. Are we closer? Who we're, will we're, do it? We're, we're much closer. And I think people, again, and patients are going to demand it. We are spending a lot of uh, time and energy and resources on our electronic medical record. Mail was really one of the first organizations to have a medical record. Mm -hmm. um, and part of the challenge that you have is you're probably in more than one system. You're seeing more than one person. Right. Those systems aren't talking to each other. Uh, the, the physicians don't necessarily talk to each other if you're seeing more than one specialist. From our perspective, that's the, the, the beauty of the integrated multi disciplinary approach that Mayo has taken from the very beginning is to ensure that. But from a national standpoint, there's still a lot of work to do. I'm sorry, say that again? They're, from a national standpoint, there's still a lot of work to do to get to a point where there's a common medical record for everybody. I mean, is it five years from now still? That it, I, I don't know. I wish I had a crystal ball because if I did, I could do my job a lot better I under, than I am. <laughs> and I understand it's not an easy thing, but it's it isn't. But yeah. but it's coming. But it's just gonna, it's coming. But it, it, part of the challenge is it is expensive. It, 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 it's finding the right technology. And when you do find the right technology, you're talking about healthcare providers that, as it is, are challenged right now financially. Right. And putting on top of that a system um, that takes a lot of time and effort. Mail's going through that process right now. Right. And uh, we're very comfortable with our system. We're going to have an excellent system probably by the end of this year. So from a Mayo perspective, we'll be there. But we understand that that's not necessarily a national state. Thank you so much. It was fun to kick around a bunch of topics. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Jim Russell is vice president and principal at Ball and Gain, are responsible for portfolio management and investment research of the healthcare sector. Uh, Jim, good to have you back. Let's start broadly because I've been watching kind of the market gyrations and Twitter, uh, twittering, <laughs> tweeting uh, oh. with folks, just kind of watching some of the moves. You know, sometimes. The speed at which the market turns around mm -hmm. kind of catches me off guard. But a reminder that more volatility is what's kind of normal in the stock market. Carol, we would agree with that. Uh, this, you know, what, what's uh, what's interesting to us 
and probably a lot of uh, other investors out there, as well as your listeners, is that the volatility really seemed to come out of nowhere almost at uh, the beginning of 2018. Certainly, it's on display the last three trading days in a row. Friday, a big down day. Of course, yesterday, spectacular up day, and then down again today. So, How does that uh, happen? How does it all of a sudden we go from kind of a complacent mm-hmm. market, and we talked about it kind of ad nauseum, mm-hmm. I think, on air saying, boy, right. everybody's kind of accepting of everything, and nothing seems right. to disturb, certainly the equity markets. Uh, and then all of a sudden, bam, it changes. We think it's a combination of a couple of different things. We think the QE being pulled away plays a role there in that there's maybe a little bit less of a safety net underneath the stock market. Secondly, an active uh, Fed, uh, they've been indi- you know, indicating that they're going to be pretty active this year uh, because they can and they need to reload uh, their gun in terms of providing uh, additional interest rate increases uh, in their ability to fight the eventual recession. And third, we think the stock market's a little bit expensive. Certainly, the the leadership where technology is concerned is starting to be questioned as well. So I think it's that combination of things uh, as well as I would tell you that our clients tell us both on the institutional and the high net worth side, and we have types, both types of investors that in, invest with Ball & Gainer, that uh, the memories are pretty short uh, between now, even though it's been nine, ten years, between now and the financial crisis. And so I would think that many investors aren't completely over that. And then uh, when whenever a little bit of volatility uh, hits the marketplace, again, those memories are pretty short. And I think there's a little bit of a sell-first type of mentality. Is it, though, investors, retail, individual investors who are reacting, though, or is it algorithms that are set to start to kick in when we see a certain market move? We think it's a little bit of both. Uh, we think that both are in play and, and both are powerful forces. So uh, uh, you one plus one equals three on the downside here, as well as the upside uh, that we saw yesterday. How do you make sense of everything that's coming out of Washington here? Where, you know, I mentioned yes uh, earlier today that, you know, one step forward, one step back, it fe- seems right. whether it's on trade policy, whether it's on tariffs, whether it's on, you know, pick your topic here. And I'm not being critical. I'm just observing what's part of our environment. Well, we, we, we do think that there's a different sheriff in town. Uh, we think that uh, the, the the president uh, prides himself as a negotiator. He's trying to get uh, the U.S. a better deal in a number of different uh, ways, militarily, economically, trade, etc. And we do think that there's a certain amount of, you know, hardcore language associated with that, especially on the front end of the negotiation. So, uh, as we saw from maybe some of the weekend comments from our Secretary of Treasury, there's quiet diplomacy taking place between the U.S. and China on maybe ramping down some of the trade tensions between the U.S. and China. Of course, that ignited the market yesterday. So we're hopeful that a lot of this is rhetoric as opposed to reality. Do we need to be smart, though? You know, we've had these conversations here at Bloomberg. It's what I love about our newsroom and just talking with everybody. But, you know, we have had trade deficit after trade deficit after trade deficit. An earlier conversation this morning on surveillance radio, you know, mm-hmm. talked with individuals from Citigroup and said, you know, trade deficits alone are not necessarily bad. You know, you have spenders and you have buyers in the world economy. That's just kind of how it works. And, you know, basically other people are doing, you know, the manufacturing and we're doing the buying kind of thing. Does that bother you that we have this kind of constant U.S. trade deficit? Uh, you know, uh, that's a great question. Uh, personally, I am not bothered by trade deficits. 
Uh, we do think that there's a competitive advantage uh, element at play here. We do certain things well. China does certain things well. Mm-hmm. India does certain things well, etc. right on down the line. Europe certainly as well. So we do think that there are natural advantages uh, of each labor force as to what they bring to the table. So I do think that President Trump, though, is specifically playing to his base. He made certain promises in the campaign that he would see to these types of things, and I think he's speaking to that right now. And uh, hopefully he makes some headway. Uh, He's asking for reciprocity on some of the tariffs where China is concerned. Don't know where that's going to end up, but I'm at least encouraged that there's diplomacy as opposed to rhetoric uh, that seems to be in play between the U.S. and China. Hopefully, both countries come out winning. How do you play this market right now, Jim? Just got about uh, 30 seconds here. Let's just talk on the equity side. I know you can't talk specific stocks, but what are some smart positions that you think will hold at least for the next year or two? Yeah, we think that the, the dividend's going to matter this year. We don't think that high dividend-paying stocks, but dividend growth stocks, which provide a bit of a defensive overlay, provide a little bit of income as you move through the year, give you a pay raise, beat inflation, and provides downside protection. It's a conservative way to play a jumpy market, and we think that's a smart way to perhaps uh, – one of the things that should be considered as we move through 2018. All right, Jim. Nice to get some time with you. Jim Russell, Principal and Portfolio Manager at Ball & Gainer, $23 billion in assets under management. Jim joining us on this Tuesday on the phone from Cincinnati. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 